Hello and welcome to Box Not Included, the show looking at geek culture and the media we love and loathe from a queer perspective. I'm Hamish Garbage Day Steel. And I'm Jade, drawing a line in the fucking sand. Do not read the Latin prose. <laughs> and today, dear listeners, we're taking a dive into a genre as much maligned as we are. <laughs> It's the month of October. Everyone's favourite month. Spoopiness is in the air and all the monsters are coming out of the woodwork. We're going to fucking talk about horror. 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 It has to be pronounced horror. Well, you can pronounce it horror. (laughs) I'm probably just going to keep pronouncing it horror. I used to joke that the definition of a horror film was a film in which a Frankenstein appears. (laughs) (laughs) I was like... Uh, yes, Jaws for Frankenstein's. It counts and <laughs> like just confuse people. Um, but what does horror mean to you? Well, this is an interesting thing because I never think of myself as being a fan of horror movies. Mm-hmm. I don't revel in the notion of being scared, which I think for a lot of people that it's why people like roller coasters. Yep. It's that adrenaline. <gasps> oh, mm. I'm not dead. <sighs> which is literally the chemical reaction that happens in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I suppose, but when I, when I start thinking more specifically, there's actually lots of films that come under the category of horror that I really enjoy. And it's an interesting dichotomy for me. Um, to refer, I, I, I went to a panel at Nine Worlds, I mentioned it briefly in our catch-up at the con, about talking about horror movies and that distinct, the line between horror and thriller. Mm. And we talked a little bit in that episode about what for us the difference was. But for me, horror should be kind of scary or play with themes about fear. Mm. That for me is horror. That's what it means to me. Films that try to get under your skin in some way, shape or form. Be that with an idea that won't leave you alone. Be that with a big guy with a knife or razor claws. (laughs) Literally getting under your skin. <laughs> this episode's probably going to contain descriptions of gore and nastiness. I'm also going to try and make a note of what films I spoil, uh, and we'll, we'll, there will have been a spoiler warning somewhere. Um, yeah, well, just generally say, if we're talking about a film, we're probably going to spoil something about it, but hmm. we'll, um, we'll aim to put a list out with the episode of films where maybe we explicitly talk about the ending, because so often with horror movies, yeah. twist endings are a real staple of the genre. Yeah, I mean, um, to me, horror, again, we, t- we talked about musicals last week, and I think it's a flavour that you can add to other genres. You can have uh, sci-fi horror and... Like Alien. Like Alien, which I think was the first one I saw because I remember getting detention at school for mentioning that I had seen Alien, <laughs> which I think is very unfair. That's kind of bullshit, <coughs> yeah. Um, but there's also, like, I love... Uh, horror that's kind of comically dark and uh-huh. I love uh, um, musical horror and I like Sweeney Todd um, I, I think I'm a big fan of sort of the more post I don't say post ironic horrors but I always very much like fourth wall breaking and things like that so horror that explores horror movies and horror yes. tropes yeah I always very much enjoy those yes I think um, something that has like a knowing Edge. I like the nudge, nudge, wink, wink um, aspect, sure. But I think that's, I do genuinely think that's part of why they are popular with queer people. Um, I listened to uh, an episode of Dead for Filth, a mm-hmm. podcast about queer horror, um, 
And something was said on that, which um, uh, they were talking about gay people, but I'm sure it applies to a lot of people where gay people are in on the joke of life, where <laughs> there are special, there's a special skill that queer people have, which is we are aware of how heteronormativity and the patriarchy is bullshit and how so we we understand what camp is we understand what horror and comedy is on a slightly different level where we're in on the joke of life and i think horror is a genre which it is kind of a parody of reality it's like a it it it, i think all horror inherently has a slightly camp and comedic edge which is kind of it's all about irony in a way. There's definitely, I feel like, a heightened reality to horror. Yeah. Like, because when you start getting into the really down to earth horror, when it's just like, no people are the true evil, mm. then I feel almost like you may be moving into thriller territory. I'm yeah. Not, I'm, I'm not sure. There are so many very smart people that spent a lot of time like mm. studying horror movies and, and, and the genre in depth. So I can't speak to it really beyond my own experiences as a viewer. No. But I think what part of this episode is going to be about how... I do think there is a big overlap between horror fans and queer people. Sure. Um, and I think wondering why that is, and also wondering why it's not more represented in the actual films. Um, I I wanted to talk about... Uh, do you have, like, a favourite horror film? Um, or one you jump to when you think of horror? I suppose, because um, you were thinking about uh, what's your first scary movie you remember watching? Hmm. Like, I probably saw a lot of films that maybe scared me in places, but the first scary movie I probably watched was um, was probably Scream mm-hmm. when it came out or a couple of years after it came out. But if I was to pick a favourite horror movie, it's got to be The Cabin in the Woods, which, oh, is, wow. <laughs> which is the one I dropped, which is what my title was from. But it's interesting that you both mentioned Scream and Cabin in the Woods because that's exactly what you're talking about, where they yeah. are aware of the genre. Yeah, um, I like, think, I particularly enjoy it about Cabin in the Woods is because the levels of meta within mm. Cabin in the Woods is particularly amazing. If you go back on my Twitter feed, amusingly, a friend of mine... Um, if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods, uh, there's these two characters in it. Um, I think they're called Hadley and Citizen. Mm-hmm. And they are, I won't explain what their role is, but they're these two guys in a control room. And at one point you see them dancing. And uh, my friend Mouse did art of the two of us in their outfits, just like <laughs> doing the exact same dance moves. And it just, it really makes me happy. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot for me to, that I love about Cabin in the Woods. But what about you? What's what's your favourite horror movie? Because you, you're a b- much bigger horror movie than a fan, horror fan than I am. It's just... Yeah, there's a thing... Something I like about Cabin in the Woods is because horror, horror has a tendency to fall into really annoying and repetitive tropes and clichés. And Cabin in the Woods goes, we know! Yeah, and I think that's the thing. When I say I love horror, I love the potential of horror. I, I have... I would not know how to direct a like action film or a romance. You could do I, horror. But I, I just I know I'm destined to do a horror film. We should you know what? We do need to do a low budget horror movie. You I would love to. We, right, okay, seriously. Guys, if you if you feel like you want to see a box not included <laughs> horror movie, let us know and we'll do a Kickstarter, we'll get a script <laughs> and we will make a horror movie. But I have so many things I wanna like I I <sighs> I watched so many horror films, sat back, just going like, that's not how you make something scary. Um, I just... 
there is a difference between shock at a loud noise and something that really gets under your skin, something that really mm. gives tension. Yeah, the mechanics of horror like suspense and mm. true fear and... Because um, I, I don't like jump scares. No. And, and I think a lot of horror can be incredibly lazy, And but there is... You're avoiding the question, Hamish. What's your favourite horror movie? Well, it's not really a horror movie. It's Ghostwatch. Um, oh, Ghostwatch. It is horror. It's not a movie. It's a TV movie, um, which is shocking. And I think that's another thing: is that horror really, unlike some genres where it can be a bit embarrassing, it really thrives with low budget. Yeah, because um, you have to use your imagination. You have to use your imagination. Because there's a reason why Blair Witch Project is so effective. Mm. Um, what it's so doing. Ghostwatch, I think. It's the original, like, found footage horror film, but it's not really found footage. It was broadcast on the BBC um, in 1990, I believe. Um, under the, it was basically War of the Worlds, the radio broadcast. It, it was un- <laughs> not that one, uh, the Orson Welles one, um, where the BBC tried to pass it off as a real broadcast, a Halloween special, uh, live broadcast from a haunted house but it was just a normal suburban house yeah um it stars parkinson um as in playing michael, him, parkinson? michael parkinson playing himself hosting the show Dur- throughout the whole show there's like this number at the bottom of the screen to call in with your ghost stories and they cut to the- it's so realistic in that sense i mean when you watch it now you're like this is so early 90s sure craig charles is in it playing himself yeah um it's hosted by a couple of blue peter presenters yeah um and the first hour of it is one of the most boring hours of television ever. Yeah. But it's genius because it's building up this kind of comfortable, oh, nothing's going to happen. And then things do. Off. And I don't want to spoil anything. And there's, I was going to show it to a friend recently. And I, every time I watch it, I'm a bit more uncomfortable with some of the content. Sure. But one of the things I wish I would really love to apply to our box and included low budget horror movie is the reason why it gets under my skin and um, why some horror films don't is every single thing that the main characters jump at and scream, you don't see. It's in the, It's probably in their heads, but there's the things that terrify me is one moment a, a woman turns around and screams at something off camera, the camera zooms around, there's nothing there, and she just says, like, there was a, someone stood behind the door. And that freaks me out. Mm. And there's another bit when a little girl says he's over in the corner and there's nothing there and then walks towards the corner slowly. They don't react to anything you see. The only things you see, they yeah, they don't react to. Mm. So the only actual frights of like a physical thing you see, no one in the room is talking about. The camera mm. doesn't linger on them. Yeah. The, there's no sound of like... Yeah. It's... Oh, I'm getting just, chills thinking about it. It's your reactions. You're not being led... To a yeah, and there's so many that you don't spot. And whenever I, sh- it's like mm. my Halloween tradition is to show someone Ghost Watch for yeah. the first time. Sure. And after we watch it, we say, "Shall we go back and see all the things you missed?" Mm. And it's so much fun. Yeah. and it's great. I was gonna say, um, talk about like how horror pops up all over the place. You mentioned like different kind of genres to it, but mm. I also like. I-, I know you're a fan of the play Ghost Stories. Um, I. Went to see Woman in Black mm-hmm. not that long ago and genuinely had an excellent time. Yes. And like some of the most effective aspects in that are so very simple. It's about creating this atmosphere within the theatre. I love theatre and horror because there's, I think we've talked about theatre before, like how you 
because you're surrounded by this mm. energy, I think theatrical horror is a real... It's the same as why people maybe do haunted house walks and yeah. things like that, because you're sort of... You're buying into it and into a way that you don't have distance. But I, you, I want you to tell me about ghost stories, because I've never seen the play. Well, I wanted to say briefly about Woman in Black, because I've seen it as well, and... The thing that doesn't stay with you, no spoilers, but the thing that doesn't stay with you isn't when she pops mm. up and you get scared. It's like the implied mm. things at the end, the kind of the themes. Yes. Like what what happens after the play, what's implied. Mm. That's what really freaks you yeah, out. Yeah, something we mentioned um, in movie musicals about catharsis and how mm. theatre can sort of... Good horror stays with you afterwards. Like yeah. one of the most effective endings of a horror movie for me personally is the end of the first saw movie Mm -hmm. the end there are some very gruesome things like torture porn and stuff like that these are have no interest in me but the first saw movie and this is a spoiler for the end of the first (laughs) saw movie the act of being trapped in the dark Mm. And literally a door being closed on you and you are alone in the dark. I was genuinely like, I broke out in a cold sweat. Yeah. And I was like, that's good horror. Good horror is, I think, this could happen to me. Yeah. Um, And that's not to say, you know, I I love a a zombie or a big monster coming after you. but It's the empathy. Like, it's when you connect with a character. Mm. Like, I I have issues with extreme empathy. Hello, autism. And other wonderful neurodivergent conditions that mean that you feel things like up here. Mm. But it's just like also the camera is so important in horror and like yes, the, and have connecting with them. Um, yes, I think a lot about when I think about like my director brain. Yeah, I think about a shot in The Shining mm-hmm. where the camera is following the little kid on the tricycle, and he turns the corner and sees the two twins. The girls, yeah. And what is so effective about that scene is you feel like you are following the child. Mm. You feel like you're in the, in, in the corridor. Yeah. And when you see the twins, they remain at a distance. Yeah. So that you yourself are leaning forward yeah. to look. Yes. You're not being... It's not being spoon-fed to No, you. you're not being propelled backwards. Yeah. Um, and I want to mention that in... So the play, Ghost Stories, yes. and in theatre, you want to see everything because mm. you're far away. Um, so there was a, 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 a play called Ghost Stories by Andy Nyman, um, who's an actor you might recognise in things, yeah. and uh, Jeremy Dyson, who's the fourth League of Gentlemen, who mm-hmm. doesn't act, um, he just writes. Um, it was a really great play. It's uh, specifically short enough so that there's no interval. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels very claustrophobic. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is jump scares. But jump scares don't have to be bad. No. And I think they're good to be there because they alleviate some of the tension. They get let you have a laugh and they let you sort of uh you can't just spend the whole film building suspense. Yeah. You've got to have little bits where you can kind of 
breathe. You breathe. Need, you can't keep up fucking full tension all the time. It doesn't work. No. You get you get either anaesthetized to it, or you become immune to it, or you just get so you get exhausted. That's why comedy is so good in horror. Mm. Like you have these moments of ha ha, and then yes. so the next thing is more effective. Like one of the biggest laughs in ghost stories is one of the stories, and I, I'm, I'm very careful not to talk about the twists Specifics, and whatever. Yeah. But one of the stories involves someone trapped in the woods and not having a signal. And one of the things that alleviates the tension is he's just like stood there going, fucking O2! <laughs> and like, it lets everyone go like, huh. And yeah. that's when you scare them. You do, you need those, you need that rise and fall of emotion. Um, and Ghost Stories got adapted into a film and it hasn't come out yet. I, I saw it last night at mm. the London Film Festival. It hasn't even got a release date yet. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's great. It's, it, it, I didn't, I, <sighs> It was very much more jump scary. Um, And the things that have still stayed with me from the play, I didn't get the same thing from the film. When I watch the play, there's a a description Mm. of something and the person describing it, it makes me cry. I'm so upset and scared. And in the film, they show it. And it kind of doesn't have the same... One of those experiences where show, don't tell... Yeah, it didn't have the same emotive. Yeah, I, I, in the in the play, he stands there and he explains it, and it's very emotional. Yeah, in the film, you see it. It just plays out. Yeah, and and just other little things like I'm more terrified by just an image or something you can't can't quite make out. Yeah, there's a brilliant moment in the film where he's he sees something and it doesn't jump on screen it doesn't uh there's no music but he sees something at a distance and you just can't work it out and he moves towards it very closely and you just you still can't make it out and then he's like stood next to it and you just don't know what you're looking at yeah and that really chills me yeah um it's cool. I'm way off the notes. I just love yeah, horror. No. I could talk about what I love about yeah, the, horror. Yeah, this is what uh, I'll give a shout out to Hamish. He's done a lot of prep for this episode. Yes. But I, I'm so in love with the, this is what I'm saying, I'm so in love with the potential and the, yes. the filmmaking expertise that when people say, do you love horror? I always have to caveat it with like, I will see almost none of the horror films that come out in the cinema. I yeah. have such a specific love of like the artistry of the directing. Yeah. Because you love Suspiria, don't you? I love Suspiria. I love Houseu, which isn't even scary. I love these weird art films, which kind of get characterised as horror. Yeah. Um, it's my favourite mood for a film or theme for a film, but just the actual hmm. films that come out. Yeah, I think so much of horror is very dominated by the cis het white experience, mm-hmm. like overwhelmingly so. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about next. In sure. I love the flavour of horror, but so much of horror... The, the sandbox of horror is an amazing blood-soaked... <laughs> yes. But the problem I find with horror is so much it's about the fear of the other. And and when you are the other... Yeah. How do we feel about that as marginalised people? I think it's not as bad for our flavour of marginalised mm. as it is for other marginalised groups. Uh, we talked, um, and this episode feels very much like a spiritual successor to our episode of Monsters that we did with Mel Pisswitch Trender. Yeah, I mean, the Monsters episode was such a big topic that I felt mm. we needed to like talk about the aspects of it separately. Yeah. Um, 
I suppose I can only really speak to my experience of being sort of, well, I also have things about being neurodivergent, which I really don't want to get into too detail about the portrayal of mental illness in horror movies and Mm. how you are either, oh, you're a killer because you're mad. Yeah, I've got a few notes about that, but it will be a very different topic. Or um, like how um, horror has a really long tradition, uh, particularly when you look at sort of like the subgenre of the slasher movie, Mm. of punishing people. Yes. And for being deviant in some way. And so often it's like you are just deviant by virtue of being queer. Mm. And that is sort of deeply upsetting to me. But on the flip side, there are examples of more progressive horror where being other is sort of like your selling point or what makes you the protagonist because Mm. you are othered. And in that case, that's a very different kind of feeling. But... Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure too much about the, of, of where I sit with this because, again, I don't actively seek out a lot of horror, so I can't speak too much to how it's particularly been portrayed because the horror I seek out I tend to, tends to sit more comfortably with me because it isn't maybe making a point of killing gay people. Yeah, I mean, the second half of this episode, after the break, I want to talk about writing horror and like what we can do to change it and how to write horror because I've been to a few like horror nights and the thing that I've always wondered is is it possible to do horror without being sexist ableist transphobic racist racist all of these things all of the ists while also playing on fear and disgusting and I think it's it's that's really interesting a lot easier I think it's a lot easier said than done and also um, I mean, for example, I write Dead Endia, which is not really horror, but I do try and do horror elements. Yeah. And every so often when I'm trying to design a monstrous creature that I want you to be scared of, I'm thinking, why am I making it that colour? Why am I making it that shape? Why am I making it behave which this way? Which is great, because I think so many people just don't. Yeah. And it's tough. And you've got to wonder why you are... what, Where the fear is coming from. Yeah. Like, like when we talked about monsters, and this is true, like... The threat in horror movies uh, does shift with the times, mm-hmm. um, and and there's lots of impact. But also, I think where horror is so often involved around the other, I think of that attracts people who are part of that other to making it. Like, yes. um, I know you highlighted a couple of directors um, well, of some classic horror. Yeah, when we talked about musicals, we talked about *Gentlemen uh, Prefer Blondes* and *Wizard of Oz* as like queer cinema. Yes. In the same vein of, like, not overt, but sort of linked, um, I think a lot about Bride of Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really good film. Don't watch Frankenstein, just watch Bride of Frankenstein. It's, like, legitimately good. Yeah. Um, I'm very fascinated by its director, James Whale, who was an out gay man in Hollywood in the 20s. Oh, wow. Um, He, I think he directed the first one as well. Um, and the first one was a pretty much an adaptation of Frankenstein. And then it was such success, success. He got to do whatever he wanted with Bride of Frankenstein. And, um, the thing people know about that film is the design of the bride, that kind of iconic hair. I love that design. Um, she's great. It's so good. But the themes of the film are so interesting. Uh Uh-huh. And... It's one of those things which, again, we've talked about, like, the link between queer people and identifying with monsters. Yes. And how 
I'm maybe going to talk later when we talk about modern films and how I think that's not an okay thing to do now. Yes. But in the time, the idea that this gay man would do a film about this creature who... It, the Bride of Frankenstein is still mostly about the creature and the bride is features near the end. Yeah. Um, this creature who no one understands, that everyone sees as this monster, that everyone sees as this threat, yeah. but just wants love and affection. And the way in which society thinks to cure him is to give him a wife, <laughs> which doesn't end well. Yes. Um, and what's interesting is that the idea to create a wife comes from a new character who's called Dr. Pastorius, who is one of the most <laughs> iconic queer-coded villains ever. But it's so interesting because it's coming from a, a, a from, coming from queer people. And he's this character who is kind of disgusted by natural relationships and birth and he wants to create everything kind of uh without the need to delve into heterosexual inter like he's so camp and bizarre mm. um that he's almost like this kind of villainous flag of like what people think of gay people yeah whereas the creature is kind of the soul of the struggle yeah. um it's just got so many interesting themes um yeah. And I know it's it's apparently going to be one of the things remade for the dark universe. Oh, great. And I just, I'm sure that'll be awesome. I know none of those themes are going to translate. The, yeah. the idea of the bride is this trapped role of society that can't work out, where I know that the new film's going to be, who can we get to look hot in that wig? And, like, it won't have any of that interesting stuff. Um, I but, always find, like, the history of camp... With horror, because we've talked about horror being such this heightened state of being that, because mm. so many people laugh off camp. Yeah, as somebody that feels very camp in a lot of what they do, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, it's 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 an oh, slight divergent for me. So I have never felt girly. I have frequently felt camp in mm -hmm. my life, and I don't know whether that's just because I'm naturally theatrically inclined, but I do recall it crystallised for me in my head just how camp I was when I reacted to something by going, "Oh my god, I'm all over it like a flannel." <laughs> Which today is one of my most iconic lines. What does John Waters call it in The Simpsons? The uh, the ludicrously, like, the tragically ludicrous, the ludicrously tragic. Yeah, it's that like deep affection for something that's not beholden to realism or society. It's just mm. it, it's that kind of irony thing where you both can like something. But you should like only ironically, but love it full well for what it is. Which comes back again to I think being well, camp and queer have their own deeply yes. interwoven. The, the, what you were saying before about being queer and a fan of horror, it's just like being in on that joke. Mm. I think there's something about that, like because we live in this sort of off shoot of main society, so appreciating camp and. Camp is alive and strong very much. <laughs> While we've moved away from the Hayes Code and things like that and euphemism and things like that, camp horror is still such a big thing. Mm. I wanted, speaking of camp, I did want to talk about... Let's talk about American Horror Story. American Horror Story. How much have you watched of it? I have it? watched, um, I think I watched all of the first few seasons. I didn't finish... I don't think I finished. The, uh, I watched Summer Freak Show. I haven't watched any of Roanoke or Cult. Cult's just started, hasn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I've watched. 
I've watched plenty. <laughs> yeah. American um, Horror Story. Oh, fucking Ryan Murphy. It has a really... They always have such good starts. I swear yeah, to God. They have a huge queer following. Yes. And I've tried it a few times and mm-hmm. it just doesn't work for me. I think it, Ryan Murphy has got such good ideas and he, then mm. I just really wish he would stop and let other people play with He needs them. to produce in the sense that yeah. he needs to commission shows for other people and like... Mm. His ideas for shows are so good. Yes. But he just needs to get off them as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise um, they just become self indulgent and messes. I mean, something that really bothered me about. Uh, so, for example, Coven. Yes. Um, was really like recommended to me as like, oh, it's really feminist. And like, <laughs> just because. It's got women in it. Everyone's a woman doesn't mean that like women just calling each other bitch all the time. I feel like Ryan Murphy writes for women as if they're drag queens. Like, he he has that skew of, like, what is funny. Femi- yeah, what's funny about women is them being sassy all the time. And, yeah. like, none of them feel like characters. Yeah. And they're punished so much. Yeah, I, I have real issues with some of aspects like that with American Horror Story. Um because there's such an interesting premise, like the same pool of actors and exploring mm. different periods of time within America, because it is so very linked into the American psyche. What we mentioned earlier about how horror changes, about what we find scary. Yeah. And I think the American Horror Story does it explores some really interesting stuff like that. I think it could do a lot better. And yeah. I think it could be more subversive. Yes. Whereas it feels too much like a love letter to a lot of the bad problems with Yeah, horror. like it doesn't challenge enough. No. And that's not getting into the problems that it has with, like, racism and... Yeah. I mean, I don't think... It it did an Asylum one, which I haven't watched. Actually, I was going to say, Asylum is one of the better seasons, mm. but it, like, horrifyingly ableist in places. Mm. And I think that's... we Again, I, I'm going to end the episode talking about, like, ways which we can challenge this. Sure. Um, but I think... One of the problems I do have with horror is you get genre, you get flavors of horror like slasher. Yeah, starts with films like Halloween, where it actually has very interesting female leads. It's actually quite subversive and in, and mm. uh, to tackle the idea of male violence in such an, like an obvious aggressive way. Yeah, and then when that gets copied. It's an excuse to kill women and yeah, to and it loses something. be voyeuristic and yeah, I'd say like they often start that way. It's like um, I'd say about the Saw movies, like mm. the first premise for all. If, there's actually quite minimal in some of the violence. It just was asking questions, and then it just goes on and on and becomes a parody of itself. Like, it just becomes about hurting people. Horror is one of those weird genres which, like, almost all of them pass the Bechdel test. It's mm. so filled with female characters. Because women are victims. But it's because they're victims, yeah. And um, it's very frustrating to me. There's there's a reality show we're called Scream Queens. It's not the same as the TV show Scream Queens. Mm. And it's one of my favourite car crashes of television. Yeah. I love it, but it's horrible. Yeah. Um, one of the judges is James Gunn, slightly before he was famous. Yeah. Um, and Sean Gunn does feature in an episode. It's very strange. Yeah. But basically, it's America's Next Top Model, but... but for uh, actresses to be... Yeah. The winner gets to be in Saw 6. Yeah. <laughs> and she is, and she's very good. But 
it tells you so much about the way horror treats women. Treats women because one of the challenges is to eat fruit sexily, and then halfway through find out it's poison. And this it, is why I've such a strong affection for Cabin in the Woods. Mm. Like, um, I don't want to get too much into Cabin in the Woods because I, I might want to talk about it a bit on the progressive side of things, despite mm. the fact I believe it's like made and produced by white men. It does yeah. pertain to do some interesting things. Uh, let's before we go into the break, I want to talk because we mentioned earlier about what it's like to to be a fan of horror or to engage with horror as part of a marginalised community, and we said about the othering. I'd like to maybe briefly mention some depressing stuff about how, like, things like Norman Bates and Buffalo Bill. Um, and a spoiler for the Insidious series, I didn't know this. I didn't um, either. In Insidious 1, there is this image of a bride in mm. black that's spooky, and then we get her backstory in the second one, and it's actually a man in a dress who's crazy. Oh. Um, and this, yeah, this, I, I, I would have liked to say this doesn't happen anymore, but then we've got Psycho in the 60s. We have fucking Silence of the Lambs, which written the late 80s film in the early 90s and Insidious from what, the last five years? I don't know when the first Insidious movie came out. Yeah. Like you'd think we were past this shit of the villainous cross-dresser. It's so strange to me because I do think it's using queerness in a way to make their presumed cishet audience uncomfortable. Whereas something like that instantly endears me to the villain or like yeah. makes think, oh, that society is the villain. But that's never the discussion. The it's always, what's more creepy than that woman is actually Yeah, can you not, yeah, excuse me. We're allowed to weaponize our queerness to fuck with cishet audiences. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of rude when you do it. If anything um, else, it's appropriative when you do it. Like, And I think it's a sign of how little the genre has in terms of solid representation when, like, I found the Babadook fun because of the whole Netflix Yeah, that was, that was a fuck up on Netflix. Yeah, but the kind of... Can't, I really feel like we should mention it and kill it with fire. The Pennywise Pennywise's Duke's boyfriend thing. Can, yes, let can we not hold up a character that you know kills gay people and targets children? Yeah, as a gay icon, please the don't whole, do that. The whole idea of the killer clown kind of comes from a serial killer called John Wayne Gacy, whose own sexuality probably was gay, um, but exclusively killed gay and bi men. And while I won't say. You know, the problem with that whole thing is that the cops weren't taking any of these murders seriously because they were young boy runaways who, you know. Yeah, just. I just think trying to make Pennywise into this, like, mm. cute gay icon. Yeah, I, I, I read this really interesting thing, which I didn't know because I've not read the book of it. Mm. But, like, there is an incident in, like, the quite present day when the kids are adults. Um, based um, on, I forget which instance Stephen King read about in the news, of, a, of a, a gay man being, like, tortured and killed, and he was so horrified by that, he put it in It. Mm. And this, and it's just like, this this gay character is beaten up and thrown off a bridge, and then Pennywise gets him, and this guy's boyfriend sees it happen. Mm. It's just I mean, like, I do think the co-writer of It was cocaine, and it's a pretty weird book. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but also Stephen King was so horrified yes. by an act of homophobia, he put it in his horror mm. book to portray it in a bad light. Yeah, and I just think... <sighs> Stop fuck. It's not cute and it's not funny. Yeah, I think we 
have fun talking about, you know, queerness and monsters. And I just think there's, it's a fine line, but it feels very clear to me. Yeah. When it starts being like, we you're, own, you're doing harm. Yeah, we, we own this character. He's gay and he's a... I'm like, nah. Yeah, can we not give the cishet something, an excuse for them to latch onto, please? Yeah. And give, like, we get villainized quite enough um, without exacerbating the problem ourselves. Before the break, I did want to briefly give a shout-out to um, a listener um, who identifies as trans and uh, is at Hellblazers. Mm-hmm. And... When I, because I did a call out, not on the box that included one, just because I have more followers on the other one That's for fine. recommendation um, for queer horror, and he, and he mentioned these films, mm. and I couldn't tell if they are recommendations in terms of positive representation or not. Yeah, because they don't feel that different to the kind of Norman Bates type sure. representation. They're still typically the villain yeah um they mentioned let the right one in which i found interesting because i couldn't remember anything to do with that but in the book Mm. the spoilers for let the right one in yes the gender of the vampire eli ellie yeah exactly is made vague um i've read i'll give a shout out to um Alyssa. Alyssa Hansen, uh, also known as Maven of the Eventide. Uh, Her her thing is vampire reviews. She recently did an episode all about Let the Right One In, the original film, the book, the American remakes. Mm. And she spends a lot of time talking about that particular issue and where it's both how it stands within the realm of trans representation. It's interesting to me because it's both let's code this horrible monster as queer, but also when the context of it is a love story. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the vampire... Ely is like is our co-protagonist. She's yeah. not an antagonist. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, Hellblazer also mentioned um, Seed of Chucky, which I remember reading about at the time. Like je- the the child of mm. Tiffany and Chucky is yeah. gender queer. I mean, it's it's one of those fluid. things that like it, I believe voiced by Billy Boyd. Yeah, it conflates uh, biology and gender, but it. It, it's weird. I'm, I'm, what I'm just trying to get at is that the queerness is still the monstrous element in, in mm. most of these. It's still something to mm. make them uncomfortable. And... Uh, whereas I would argue we'd let the right one in, um, whether or not you regard it as transness or not, is a humanising aspect of the character rather yes. than a demonising or part tied to her, her monstrosity. The fact yes. that she's a vampire, they're different. It's not. They're not conflated. Yeah, it's 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 a... It's complicated. Watch the Maven of the Eventides review on that right one in for it. <laughs> it's a it's a delicate tightrope yeah. to walk. Yeah, I don't I don't know about the skin I live in, which was the other film that. No, I did a brief look, and again, none of these seemed clear. It wasn't yes. a clear representation. It was there's themes to get from there, and hmm. um, they all three of them do seem to do it a little better than uh. The other examples we mentioned, but I don't think it was necessarily the thing's intention to be a sure. big talking point of it. I'll tell you what, uh, it's getting a bit dark in here. I think we should uh, light some <laughs> lights and maybe put the kettle on. What do you think? I agree. Cool. It's the middle section of the show. 
Uh, yep. <laughs> we are currently in a, to very... a graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, we're in a very well-lit kitchen taking a break from spoopy things. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you very much for listening. Mm. Um, I hope you've been enjoying this episode. Yes. Um, and if uh, you can face the horror of the uh, changes to the <laughs> uh, the Apple iTunes uh, podcast app... <laughs> Um, please, yeah, leave us a review and uh, a rate, uh, a subscribe, all great. Um, we really appreciate it. I've been reading a lot of the reviews and and just another thing I think's been really nice. I've seen a lot of people um, recommend us on Twitter. Um, Hell yeah. I keep get, we keep getting notifications on Twitter, and I go to it and it's just a list of podcasts I really like and recommend. And often it's in the same tweet as like huge big podcasts that yeah. Um, I'm just it's really nice to know yeah um a couple of friends of mine have been binge listening to Vox Not Included recently and mm-hmm. I've said lots of nice things and while they're my friends I really appreciate them saying it nonetheless it's like really cool um I'm gonna mention this at the end again but uh I think this episode will be going out the week of MCM Comic Con it will be yeah it'll and be going out that Monday yeah so we're both gonna be there at my Hell table yeah, we are. um at Hamish Steel, the comic village, um, Jade's coming over to help with uh, the table, which is really nice. Yeah, I'm looking um, forward to it. So please come say hello. Last time you came for like an hour to at my table and we had someone come up and say how much it meant to them. So that was really nice. So Yeah, we're going to bring the problematic job. We are, but we've replaced the uh, tens of thousands. Yeah, of... we're going <laughs> to use the money to buy some sweets and put those in the jar instead. Yeah. Um, do you know who else will be at MCM? It's going to be our amazing sponsor, Beastly Beverages. That was a segue and a half. That was very good. Um, they produce fantas- fandom and fantasy luxury hand-blended loose-leaf tea and tea-related geeky paraphernalia. The business is queer-owned, all ingredients are organic and fairly traded, and almost all the products are suitable for vegans. It's also run by a fan of horror, um, fitting in our episode's theme. Yeah. And uh, he's done a selection of Monster and Demons themed teas and we're going to spotlight uh one today leviathan leviathan which uh, is a fragrant deep chai with a sweet cinnamon edge black tea and rich spices good with and without milk uh contains cinnamon pieces cloves and jasmine buds and that's a black tea which sounds oh very tasty indeed each bag contains 100 grams of completely organic fairly traded luxury tea and it makes a minimum of about 100 cups because literally like one teaspoon is all you need to do a large cup or a mug and the artwork is by Mr. Lucian, who is a uh, celebrity of the Comic Village. I like to say. Yeah, he, you will definitely spot him if you are wandering Comics Village at MCM. So go buy your Leviathan tea at the stand. Take it around to us to uh, sign. Sign and then <laughs> no, no, take it to Lucian to take sign. Take it to Lucian to and sign, and then come say hello to us. For sure, it'd be great um, to see you. But if you're not making it to MCM, um, you can go to beastlybeverages.com. And if you spend twenty pound or more there. You can get free shipping with the sponsor code Beverage Beast, or one word, capital B's. It's also very easy to spend twenty pounds because that's about two. Two, so that's two hundred cups of tea. Yeah, at least. At least. Or you can buy like a mug for your tea and yeah. a cute little charm. The uh, the store also sells mugs, cups, stickers, prints, stickers, also uh, mystery and, uh, boxes. Yeah, and uh, you can spot them on Patreon. You can go on Facebook, uh, Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram. You get to see pictures of the new products as they come in. Uh, Checking with the business, which is always really interested. And uh, Gabe has a YouTube channel now. 
yes. uh, Mr. T Beast. Um, and uh, there's always new offers and uh, there's lots of interactive elements to Most be a fan. Like you lots can... of polls and things for like yeah. new products. And uh, yeah, once again, if you just want to buy yourself some tea for now, uh, you can use the code Beverage Beast. That's www.beastlybeverages.com. Um, the only place to get your... I'm going to stop the segment. I have never been able to come up with a good slogan for Beastly Beverages, and Gabe has never said, I really like that bit when you <laughs> make, <laughs> make fun of my brand. Um, spill the tea with Beastly B. Do it. Want to drink up and head back into the studio? Get spoopy? I'm always spoopy. I know. That's my secret cap. (laughs) (laughs) But more so. Hey, Mish, let's try and fix horror. Yeah. That's not a big ask at all. I think I've been, I think I've been definitely able to show my passion for it, um, while also pretty disappointed with a lot of the offerings. Um, But there are people out there trying, like there is this movement to make horror more progressive. And I think it's led by uh, a lot of people who are queer or they're black or people of colour and people who often these films have been targeting are trying to... Reclaim it. Reclaim it. Sure. Um, I don't think we can really talk about that movie without mentioning Get Out. Yes. Um, as we said before, in many episodes, we are we take things from a queer perspective, but we are both white. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an undeniably great film. Yeah, and... Um- I mentioned it before again on our MCM catch-up. Uh, if you're interested in uh, reading a little bit more about it, if you go to uh, Twitter, uh, check out Electo101. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to see an amazing talk by Helen about uh, the get-out and the horror of whiteness. Uh, I believe it's still her pinned tweet. And uh, I learned so much listening to that, and it was really great. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am I boil down the ways in which you to make progressive horror into sort of three big categories sure and get out as an example of one which i fear feel is finding out what's actually scary about our society i think we um too often rely on the same fears that established the horror genre of the fear of the other and and strangers and they aren't really scary or they are but what is other has changed Yes, and I in think a lot of ways. Um, making your protagonist not the uh, usual horror protagonist yes. is a good way to step a different point of view. What would they find scary? Yes. Um, I, I, I sometimes think if I was going to make a uh, queer horror film, it would be quite close to A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, <laughs> okay. Freddy's Revenge. Okay. Um, Tell me why. It is not a perfect film. It's not a great film. It's also not really a queer film, but also it comes up whenever you talk about queer horror film, it comes up. It is significant in that it came at the full middle of the slasher boom where it was all the kind of nuance of the genre had fizzled away and it was just an excuse to see hot girls killed. Don't yeah. know what way that does that for people. It's kind of disturbing. Mm, um, into Nightmare on Elm Street Two yeah. is kind of unique in that the main character is a man. Um, he's called Jesse, played by Mark Patton, who is gay. All right. Um, and instead of being 
instead of like filling a masculine role, it doubles down on him being feminine and right. very gay coded to the point where the writer said I was intentionally meant to be like, it was meant to have a homoerotic subtext. Yeah. Um, he's very much the final girl. He is seen dancing around his room with like a hairbrush singing and like pushing, like there's lots of shots of him, like closing drawers with his butt in like hot pants. And nice. He, even though there's lots of examples of him being masculine in, uh, when he's in view with people, in whenever, private. Yeah, in private and in his dreams, which is like the concept of the series, he's very uh, closed in, very introverted, very... um, interesting. He has a very distinct high-pitched scream. Cool. Where it's just, it's very different when when horror protagonists are male, it's often their kind of masculinity at threat. Yes. And he doesn't seem to be that concerned with still remaining a man. Right. Um, a lot How refreshing. Of, a lot of the film, there's a, there's a scene when he can't really uh, make out of a girl, so he goes to his, like, male friend and they have a chat and his male friend's, like, shirtless and literally says, like, you fancy me and things like that. Oh, right. Um, and one of the sort of interesting aspects <laughs> of the film is... Freddy targets people who are, um, you know, vulnerable. Yeah. And part of the solution, we think, is for him to finally make out with that girl. And the kind of end in the film has... Spoilers for (laughs) Freddy's Revenge. Um, Part of the end of the film is that, oh, he's now got a girlfriend, so Freddy doesn't hurt him anymore. Until, like many horror films, the final shot is, oh no, actually, he's still there and he kills them. So the solution doesn't work. What do you know? Being cishet bunk here, everything. Yeah. um, There's also other things, like for a brief moment in the film, Freddy possesses Jesse and he goes out and does killings. And one of them is he gets his (laughs) high school sport coach. He kind of strips him in the bathroom and smacks his bum with a towel repeatedly. Um, Okay. So yeah, this comes up a lot. And when I say it's close to what I imagine, what I'm talking about is it's okay just to make your protagonist queer. Yeah. It's, we, we're going into a horror film. We know people are going to die. We know people are going to have horrible things happen to them. It's a horror movie. It's a horror movie. But I think when people are scared of the sort of the killing your gaze trope, mm. it's very much, that's a problem in... A wider, in a wider trend where you have a big ensemble cast and the only characters that seem to die and have miserable lives are the queer ones. Whereas in a horror film, if your protagonist is the final girl and if they die in the final scene, that's, that's a pretty good innings. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alternatively, kill all your cishets and yes. have your gays remain. Yeah, I just think, again, you talked about horror punishing people. Yes. Um, and you don't want them to feel like they're punished for their queerness. Yeah. Or uh, so often there's a kind of parallel between the female character that has had sex and the female character who hasn't, and the one that's had sex is the first to die, often in a very voyeuristic and mm. sexualized manner. Yeah, I'll mention uh, Cabin in the Woods here. Mm. Like, the whole premise of Cabin in the Woods is to do... Uh, its whole thing is uh, dissecting horror tropes. And in America... That trope is a bunch of five kids mm. 
go to a cabin in the woods, kick off a series of events that mm. they choose because it's important that it's their choice, and then all get killed. The death of the final girl is optional. But what's interesting is they have these types. You have the... And the one that dies first is the character referred to as the slut. Mm. What's interesting about that character is, in preparation before the characters get there, is uh, she started dyeing her hair blonde, and they put something in her hair dye to make her stupid. Mm. And she's drugged throughout it to be more promiscuous, to be more sexually open in a way that is out of character for her. Mm. And the scene where she's going to die, where they're having sex in the woods, it's really interesting the way that's framed. It's just like the whole concept of Cabin in the Woods is that these shows of horror are being done for something, yeah, for an audience, for us, the audience, but also within the text, an audience. I'm using inverted commas here. And so it's just like, no, 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 you have to be careful. You have to frame this perfectly, but it can't be too much. Mm. And that whole concept is really interesting. What's fun about that is the final girl or the virgin is not a virgin mm. in that, but it's close. I have my own theories about that's because like Fran Kranz's character, the uh, the joke, the fool type, mm. he's a stoner, is a virgin. He's um, heavily connected to be ace. Mm. And uh, I just like, that's because he was, quote, killed first. Or before the end, that's why the ritual doesn't work. Mm-hmm. There's a real, there's some really interesting things about dissemination of tropes, yeah, and how they're bullshit in real life. I mean, there's a talking about feminist horror. Yes, um, there are a few examples I like, and I haven't seen all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, people often mention it follows. Because it's a fairly new one, isn't it? It is a fairly new one. It's like the STD demon. It's the STD demon. But what I find interesting is that it's very much framed that it wasn't a problem she had sex. It's it's something that happens to her. And it's an interesting film when you think about consent in that someone can say yes, someone can enjoy something, but that doesn't mean that they say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that something else can happen and they've consented to that. Sure. Um, and that's just, the, I mean, it's subtle, but if you want to still have your final go and you want to still have all of these aspects, there's just so many different ways to show where the problem was, where yeah. the punishment's coming from. Yeah. Um, uh yeah, a shout out to Jennifer's Body, which I need to see. I don't know whether Diablo Cody directed it. I have not seen Jennifer's Body. Neither I, have I, I, and I really feel like I should. It was. It's uh, on the list of my um, Monster Hearts group to watch when yeah. someone can't make a session. But the premise of like this girl being sacrificed by this happens at the beginning of the movie, mm. like, being sacrificed by this band for like fame and fortune, and she comes back as like this demon and starts eating, pe- killing mm. people, and um, just like. I think she, I think there's this great line where Amanda Seyfried's character Needy says to her, "You're killing people," and, and she's just like, "No, I'm killing boys." <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and a film I have seen that I do really love is Teeth. Um, the old vagina dentata. This is the thing; it gets called the vagina dentata film, yeah, which it is, but it's that's not really. It's about so much more. It's a really interesting like character study. Yeah. Um, it's again, it's very much about consent, and it's about changing what a horror film usually does which is 
punish the slut. Sorry yeah. for all these words we're using. Yeah, no, we do um, not like these words. We are using the vernaculars of the... Yeah, that's what a horror is about. Whereas in Teeth, it's very much about um, shifting the vic- like shifting the blame to like masculinity and the men. And... And also society's expectation about sexuality. Yeah. Um, this, the, the main character like has a purity ring and she's very much about pureness. Um, and whether this has to do with the fact that she has teeth in her mm. vagina or does she? Is it psychological? Interesting. Um, it's, it's so good in what it doesn't show and how unexploitative it is from what sounds like a very exploitative, horrible um, premise. Mm-hmm. It's very much about a woman... Uh, taking control of her sexuality and using it how she wants to. Sure. Um, it's it's great. I really like it. Yeah. And I think that's another thing about horror films is quite often, I love the film Drag Me to Hell. Um, yeah. I think it, does, it does some pretty dodgy dated ideas about Romani curses and things like that. But one of the reason I do like it yeah. is the main character is a really, really fun main character. Yeah. And so often I think horror just sees its main characters as an excuse to see some boobs and like mm-hmm. just dispose of these women as objects. Yeah. It's really bad for that. And I love horror when it gives main characters which you really want to survive because you really love them. And the punishment feels really not the punishment, but like the horrible things that happen to them. You really don't want them to happen. You don't, you don't delight in glee. Yes. Um, you can in like some of the heightened silliness and Sam Raimi. I love his brand of horror and Evil Dead 2 I love. And you do like clap with glee at how silly and heightened it yeah. is. But ultimately, the reason why there's three Evil Dead films and a whole Evil Dead TV yeah. series is it's centered around a really great character yeah. and performance. Yeah. Um, um, I want to give um, a shout out to the Soska sisters, mm-hmm. um, also sort of known as the Twisted Twins. They're Canadian sisters. Um, their whole thing is working in the horror genre. Mm. Um, the only film I've, I've seen of theirs is American Mary, which um, involves an actress who I'll also go on to speak about in some other films, uh, which is sort of a take on the revenge. Mm. Um, this woman that experiences a sexual assault and then proceeds to... Uh, Get revenge in a really delightful. Uh, she was studying to be a surgeon, and it's it's not the easiest film to watch. Granted, any of those revenge films, given if you know what they generally tend to be about, mm-hmm. they are not easy to watch. But there was some real interesting stuff in there. I want to give a shout out to a trilogy of movies that I really love, which got mentioned, I believe, to you on Twitter, the Ginger Snaps trilogy. Which, I didn't know there was more than one. There's three, and I have them all. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, but they're a really good take on the werewolf genre, involving uh, teenage girls. Mm-hmm. And I've just checked; all three of them were written by women. Mm-hmm. I had a woman writer, and they are—I just—I love them for what they do with the genre. And um, I will definitely make us watch them because, especially the first one. Completely unrelated, but on yes. your um, sibling episode, you yes. mentioned Tank Girl, and uh, couldn't remember what else the director had done, Rachel Talele. Yes. Um, she directs, like, most of the season finales of Doctor Who. Hell yeah! And, like, um, she's great. She's, like, whenever an episode of Doctor Who is directed really well, it's usually her. Um, but, That's good to know. But it's significant because you looked up Ginger Snaps, but I, and who'd written them, mm. and I think it's because you had an inkling. And I think that's, 
the way in which characters are, are written is so clearly different in yeah. films from... What do you um, know, a well-written woman? But yeah, but I think that's one of the reasons why Get Out is so yes. popular and that um, I wanted to mention A Night, Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Um, not really relevant to what I was just mentioning now, but in talking about um, making your leads... Uh, not the typical lead. Mm. Night of the Dead, I don't know when it came out. It's black and white. Uh, yeah, but I think that's a stylistic choice. No, it's, it's... I feel like it's much older. I'll look it up. Um, it's the very first of the dead George A. Romero films. Okay. Um, it's old. I'm but looking it up, I'm looking <laughs> it up. Look, the internet only goes so fast. I don't know what you're looking like <laughs> that for. But to me, it's significant in that it has a black lead. Mm-hmm. And in the film, 1968. 1968, yeah, and that's quite significant for 1968. I feel, yeah, um, in a horror film. Um, George A. Romero says that he made the film with his friends, and he was the best actor. So of course, he made him the main character. And uh, mm. but what's very interesting about the film, and I don't know if this was implied in the script, um, was written in the script. Yeah. Um, spoilers for Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. But the film ends with him being the only survivor yeah. of this zombie incident. Yeah. Um, and then he is shot yeah. by someone who mistakes him for a zombie. Yeah. And they they say something about how, oh, do you know that zombie? They're like, no, eh, it doesn't really matter. Um, and it's that kind of, in such a tiny sense, mm-hmm. the fil- what the film is about suddenly becomes very clear. And they're like, this isn't about the dead rising, this is about the waves of the other and how we treat the other. treat people and how we treat the other. And that's why I think with his, at least his, of the dead initial trilogy, why his zombies feel a bit more purposeful and about yes. something more than the typical zombie film. Um, I wanted to also briefly mention something else. We're not going to go into the lane of too much because you said you didn't want, to, didn't want to talk about it. Um, because I feel we should not because it's something I... <laughs> no, but I wanted to briefly mention Split. Okay. Um, because, very briefly, um, I watched all of M. Night Shyamalan's film in a, a weird, drunken rage with Lydia when we did All Night Shyamalan. Yeah. Um, I find him very fascinating because I feel... He really clearly understands film language and is actively trying to break it, which never works, but he's trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I wanted to, and really, really recent, uh, very completely unrelated. I'm uh, the new series of Red Dwarf has started, and I think in its first episode is very. I'm comparing an episode of Red Dwarf from a few days ago and Split. Both of them try to sort of have their weird cake and eat it. Okay. So in Split, huge. Uh, derided for its betrayal of mental illness. It's very clear in the film straight away that this is actually about something supernatural and actually his multiple personalities are his kind of redeeming humanity aspect. It's the thing that makes... The humanising aspect. Humanising aspect. It's the thing that makes him sympathetic and human. And the story is more about some evil force that's taken hold, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, but doesn't change the fil- fact that the film was heavily advertised based on our fears of mental illness. And it plays on that throughout the majority of the film. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of a 
tiny the reason why I wanted to talk about Spiller Reminds about it in this Red Dwarf episode, where they talk a lot about psychopaths. Mm. And they mention very offhand, not all psychopaths are evil and kill people. But let's also do a whole thing about how psychopaths are scary and evil and kill people. Mm-hmm. And it's that's to me is a bad example of like shifting the power and where the fear comes from. Yeah. Um another thing I really want to like mention briefly is it again and how there's a scene in it in the is book. Is this the new one or in the new one, but also I think it's in the book. I also kind of want to see the new one, I've got to say. Too many people I know of since I liked it. <laughs> um not a not really a spoiler, but the 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 pre- the the it um tackle you know attacks people's fears yes and i quite enjoyed that because the fears of children are quite abstract and uh, one of the kids is very scared of a weird painting and i remember that feeling of like yeah. walking past a painting really quickly in like my grandma's house yeah um and one of the fears someone has is represented as a leper. Okay. But, and while it's very frightening, disgusting, it's very much playing into that character's fear of disease mm. and not saying we are scared of people with disease. So I am scared of sick. Yeah. and Because and that's a character, spoilers for it, whose mother basically has Munchausen's by proxy. Yes. And is making it, him sick. It reminds me of something that Mel Pisswitch Trender said. <laughs> I only to give her a full title. Um when she was working on uh, her new comic, Brigantia, which is out and you can buy, um, they wanted a similar villain who like plays off fears. And for a brief moment in the script, I think they were saying that they wanted to represent him as a homeless man. And I found that very interesting because it's a fear that people don't really want to acknowledge. Yeah. It's, it's not a fear fear. It's just like, it's that kind of guilt... The fear mm-hmm. of guilt. Yeah. And the fear and it's of... it's upsetting. It's upsetting. And then they sort of changed it because then they didn't want the reader to think... They were the, demonising the homeless Yeah, people. the reader, the, the writer was saying, that's gross and scary. They wanted to say, again, guilt. Yeah. And I do think in ghost stories as well, and just, I'm mentioning all of these hundreds of examples. Horror is such a huge thing that we're taking a dive into right But that's now. to get to the point of making the fear something that's not about something it's the fear of guilt it's the internalized emotion surrounding yeah. your own fear of something being yeah. bad and having to confront that yeah why you think why you are scared of this thing rather yeah. than what it is that you are scared of yeah that's um, interesting i we're going we we're, we're wrapping up i'm kind of it's all going to make sense in the end like a true horror film ah. um <laughs> there's a line sorry never mind I was going to say a line from Ghost Stories which is someone's opening a door and they're like you know it's always the final key that explains everything isn't it and yeah. you're like oh. but anyway um, one well, of- yeah it is because you stop after you've found it mm. so it is always the last thing you try yeah but anyway the um, one of my favourite horror auteurs uh, is Jinji Ito who does a horror manga um, and is that I th- the one with the the hole fits? Is that yeah the the holes, the spirals, and things like that? And that's what I find really interesting is that um, he has a lot of female protagonists. I've never got a feeling from any of his work, and I've read pretty much all of it that things are happening to women because they are women, or things are happening in a very sexualized way. Yeah, he 
And also what's really interesting about manga is that you can look at the page for as long as you want. A lot of horror is based around like, Quick. ooh, did you see that? And like, boom. Yeah. Whereas you have full control over the page turn. I have been deeply freaked out by some manga stuff that I've read. Yeah, it, 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 his final panels on all his pages mm-hmm. are always like someone reacting to something, yeah. but you don't see it, and it's up to you to, to turn, turn the, the page. page. That's such a great um, way to build suspense. And, I, and, and all of his fear is about really abstract things. It's the fear of spirals, and it's the fear of... Uh, like some of his stories just haunt me Stay, so horribly. Stink, yeah. There's there's one which I want to just explain. It's it's gross. Please skip if this really does gross you out. Go in thirty seconds. Someone has their head chopped off by the thinnest wire or razor. It's off, but oh, their head doesn't fall off. They does keep it? it on, and so for the rest of their life, so they they, they have to keep their head. F- on their head, have to hold their head on and their it's neck. like the fear of exhaustion and like your own mm-hmm. like how long can I do this for and the story ends with um, that getting sewn up and cured and happy and he can do it but he can never remove his hands from his head because yeah, of that, that fear. fear and that's good horror that's good horror and like that's told in a manga with no music or sounds or dialogue or pacing it's all up to you yeah. so suppose we should say as writers or and creators what we can do to yeah. continue in these lines of progressive horror that's all of a second half have been rambling about various recent references and research and whatever it's coming to three principles i feel and how to make progressive horror that doesn't sure. uh, can scare people but it doesn't make someone feel uncomfortable in a way that stops them going to see horror films sure and i think that is just include queer characters in your film. Um, and don't punish them for that. Yeah. Punish them for other stuff, sure. Um, yeah. Like, go the extra step that Nightmare on Elm Street might have done. Yeah. Where queer people exist, and same as all genres, it's just like, you can just put them in your film. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'd say is, take fear, take horror and fear from the real world, the real things that we should be scared of, and... Think again about what's scary to nowadays and to marginalised groups, not marginalised groups being scary. Yeah. Or the other way, go full abstract. Think about what could be scary that isn't scary. And make it scary. Yeah. I'll never look at a spiral in the same way again. Yeah. I'll never think of a a hole in a wall quite the same way. I was going to say that. I think what's good about it is you just make the premise of a red balloon scary. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 presence of something. Yeah. There's things that will always be universally scary. The idea of a the dark, the dark, a stranger in your house. Um, these things are scary. A noise that you keep hearing, but you can't work out what's making the noise. Yeah. Um, what's re- fear is such a primal thing. We carry stuff that's been a part of. There's a reason why we fear the dark. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why we fear what we can't see. And I've always think of me as someone who uh, I feel quite distant from my emotions a lot. When I watch things, I sometimes feel quite closed off. And what I like, what I like from films is films that can tackle my emotions. They can make me cry and whatever. And horror more often than not makes me feel something. Mm. um, And often makes me feel something long after I've watched it. And that's what I want to see more of. Yeah. And hopefully do one day. Sure. 
Well, I hope that uh, we have left you with some stuff to think about, <laughs> listeners. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, maybe recommend some progressive horror that we didn't mention or that mm-hmm. you particularly enjoy or you think did something interesting but maybe fell a little at the last hurdle, uh, you can get in contact with us on Twitter where I'm at jdoxfordwrotes. I'm at Hamish Steele and we also can be contacted through Box Not Include itself, mm-hmm. um, at Box Not Include on Twitter and Tumblr. We also have a Facebook group. Um, I really want somebody else to join the Facebook group because we are one away from a nice <laughs> That's good to know. That's quite a lot of members. I know. Um, and it, the discussions are really great and uh, we are we get more response from yeah. Facebook than we do on Twitter. Um, and that's Boxing Included. Or you can contact us directly at boxingincluded at gmail.com. We want to give a shout out to Graham Waller, Audio Overlord and Master of the Soundwaves. Uh, he composed our theme music. He helps produce the podcast. You can check out his work at GrahamWaller.com and you can check out his synthy stylings of his uh, duo Glitterwolf over at Bandcamp, glitterwolf.bandcamp.com. Can I also give a shout out to the Poltercast? I think that's Um, very apt. uh, If you enjoy horror and Ghost uh, ghost stories and my voice and the voice of Tiffany Baxter, my co-host, the Poltercast has finally launched its first episode. And uh, Graham Waller also did our amazing theme music for that. It's very spoopy. It is very spoopy and also kind of funky. Yeah. Things that go bop in the night. Things that go bop in the night. <laughs> I love it. Um, but until next time, I'm Jade Rose. And I'm Hamish Steele. Maybe leave some lights on, but don't let anyone box you in. Do, do, do. Help, I'm in a box! Help, I'm in a box!